This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 6, verses 8 through 15. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' sermon that he gave right at the beginning of his ministry. And he gave it to kind of a large group. You had there his own disciples. You had, maybe you might call them the common everyday folk. Then you also had the religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees kind of milling around. And a couple of weeks ago in chapter six, verses one through 18, Jesus focused on what we call the practice of the law. In other words, the motives behind the religious practices that we do, our prayers, our giving, are fasting. That, that is in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, but right in the middle of that section is what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And so what I wanted to do is I taught on that, and I kind of pulled out the Lord's Prayer, and now I'm putting it back in, and we're going to take a look at that. And we're actually going to do a two-part series on this, on the Lord's Prayer. Because it's divided in two equal parts. The first part is focused on God's glory, His name, His kingdom, and His will. And the second part is focused on our needs as human beings, our provision, our pardon, and our protection. And so today we'll look at the part that focuses on God's glory. Now, this prayer that, that Jesus says to, for his disciples to do is really more of an outline or a pattern for prayer. It's not really designed that we're just to say it repetitively, although you can, and it's probably good to memorize it and know it, but this is really Jesus' way to instruct his disciples. This is a good way to pray. As a matter of fact, just to have this prayer and say it repetitively, Jesus had already told his disciples in chapter 5, verse 7 this. He says, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard by their many words. And there is a key to this prayer. I want to just tell you right up front. The key, really, to any prayer is our relationship with God as our Father in heaven through Jesus Christ. He is a Father who knows our needs and who cares. And all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of the Gospel writers, when they talk about God, for those that know Christ, they always talk about Him as a Father. As a matter of fact, it's so impactful that most scholars believe that the word father dramatically summarizes the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those who are born again, if you know Jesus Christ and you have a relationship with him, you have a relationship with God as father. Now the scribes and Pharisees, they knew about God, but I call him a distant deity to them. But we are to know God. And we are to know him personally, relationally. As a matter of fact, Jesus said 
In his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Now, that word know is the Greek word gnosko, and it means to know someone through direct personal experience. And so to know Christ is to know the Father, and to know Christ is to have the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Jesus also said in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We are one with Christ, and we are one with the Father and the Spirit. And so as we work our way through this message, keep that in mind. We are to know our God personally. It matters. So today, in this text, Jesus will show us how people should pray. So how, as God's people, should we pray to our Father in heaven, first thing? We pray to our Father in heaven with intimacy and reverence. We pray to our Father in heaven with intimacy and reverence. Now, God is holy, but he also very clearly points out that he is a Father who cares for us. Look at verses 8 and 9, it says, do not, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So Jesus begins in verse 8, so do not be like them. Now, Jesus is making very clear from the very get-go here when he's talking about this prayer, he doesn't want us to be like those Gentiles that just say a bunch of prayers repetitively. And he does not want us to be like the scribes and Pharisees that kind of got into this ritualistic system where the prayers became meaningless. As a matter of fact, William Barclay says this. He said, prayer had become ritualized. The wording and the forms of prayers were set and were simply read and repeated from memory. Such prayers could be given with almost no attention to what was being said. They were a routine, semi-conscious religious experience. So not only were the religious praying kind of with this ritualistic praying, but also they had become prideful, and that pridefulness had kind of spread to the people. Jesus said in verse 5 of chapter 6, he says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. That was a common word he used for the scribes and Pharisees. He says, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they might be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. They want to be seen by men. And Jesus is saying, don't be like them. He says, hey, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like them. Well, what are we supposed to do? Verse 9, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So he starts out with, hey, pray then in this way. That is hutas un. It literally means thus therefore, but it means pray along these lines. Pray following this manner. So this prayer is more accurately known as the disciples' prayer. It's to help his disciples know how to approach God accurately with the right heart. And so again, it's okay to memorize it and it's okay sometimes to repeat it, but really it's an outline for us. And Jesus begins right at the beginning with two main ideas. One, intimacy for God's children and access to a holy king. I don't know if you know this, but 
as a child of God through Jesus Christ, you're a royal child. And you have access to the royal king of heaven. And we as his people, we can actually go into the throne room of God boldly because he is a father and he wants us to come to him. And Jesus is also stressing the greatness of God and his heavenly kingdom. God is a God who's holy. He's a God of glory. He's a God who's eternal. We are finite. We are earthly. But he calls us to come. And so he begins here, our Father in heaven. Now the Jews had known God as Father, but it was no way as intimately as Jesus is saying here. They had this kind of idea that God is kind of a father just over things. Isaiah said 700 years before Christ in Isaiah 63, 16, that he was the father over Israel. He says, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from old is your name. They also saw him as a spiritual father and savior. David said in Psalm 89, 26, he said, he will cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. But over the centuries, what happened is, is the Jews strayed away from God, particularly in this idea, even remotely as father. And they started to worship idols. They started to sin. And then they got into, if you call it, ritualistic systems of religion. But that is not the way it is to be with us as Christians today. There's a marked difference. We know God as Father. Now, I don't know if you've ever read J.I. Packer's Knowing God, excellent book, but this is what he says. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name of God. Do you know him? Do you have that freedom that understand that when you bow your head in prayer that you have a father who wants to hear from you? Do you have that intimate relationship with him? And I know this from a lot of reading and study that did you know that prayer is the number one request that people ask that they want to still learn how to grow in? That most people feel that they fail in this area. Well, one way to begin to realize you don't need to feel like you fail is he wants you there. He's a father. He's calling us home. He's calling us to talk to him. Now, there are three elements that can be seen from this statement, our father in heaven. And he doesn't say my father. He says our father. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God and has been from eternity. He is my father to Jesus, but he's our father corporately. That means that we are part of the larger body of Christ. We're part of the fellowship of Christ. We're adopted into his kingdom, made a child of God. And so he begins with this kind of corporate fellowship of our father. The second thing we see is that there is intimacy available with God through Christ. He calls him father. 
This is really important. That means when Christ said this to his disciples, which is us, an extension, he's calling us to be intimate with God. He's calling us to move close to him in relationship. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible teaches that an unbeliever, God is not father. They have another father. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in his condemnation of the Jewish leaders, this is what he said to them at the very beginning of John 8, 44. I'm just going to read the first part. He says, you are of your father, the devil. As if a person does not know Christ, has not received him as their Savior and Lord, then God is not their father. But guys, he can be. Because John 1, 12 says, as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. This is what the gospel is all about. People don't realize that he's not their father yet. Now, Paul also said this in Galatians 3.26. He says, for you are all the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So in Christ, the door has suddenly been opened for intimacy with God. The veil has been torn. We now have access as royal children to the king of heaven. And guys, there is great benefits to intimacy with God. First of all, we no longer need to be fearful. Now, there is what I call the fear of God, and I think that that's a, it's an important part of the Christian faith. God is holy, we're not. But because we have Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ covers us, we now can come into the throne room of God, and we have access to the Father. We don't need to be terrified. Second, we have a Father in heaven who cares for us. That means we have hope great hope because we're his children he knows our needs he wants to help third you don't need to feel alone anymore you may be rejected by family friends whatever but you have a father in heaven who cares so you have these two elements this corporate fellowship you have this intimacy and there's a third element and that's worship jesus says father in heaven Guys, he's, he's God. And he calls us to worship him, but the way we worship matters to God. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. John 4, 23 and 4 says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So what does it mean to worship God in spirit? Well, if you notice, spirit in verse 24, when it speaks to the people, it's a small s. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about our spirit. He's talking about the inner person. He's talking about the heart. God is calling us first to worship him from the inside out, from the heart. This includes the emotions and the will. He desires devotion from us to him. And it comes in worship from the inside out. But it doesn't stop there. It also includes the mind. We worship him also in truth. Acceptable worship rests on true understanding of the perception of who God is. We worship him from the heart, but also the head's involved. And the only way we're gonna understand who God is is to understand what the Holy Scriptures speak about who God is. 
This is why we must worship him in truth. You must know the word of God. And the reason God put his word in written form so that we could have it is that we could know who he is and worship him properly. Jesus said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. One commentator said this, he said, truth without emotion produces lifeless serving and praise. Emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and zeal without direction. But real worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and love sound doctrine rooted in truth. David said in Psalm 148, 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to those who call upon him in truth. So we worship God both with our heart, our emotions, but also with our mind, the truth of God's word. So when Jesus said, hey, pray in this way, our Father in heaven, it included being part of the corporate church, intimacy with God as a heavenly Father, and worship of our God from our hearts and our minds. But guys, it also must include the fact that he is holy, and so it must have reverence as well. Jesus says in verse 9, Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. We should pray with reverence. We should give him the rightful place in our life as the Holy One. Now, hallowed is a kind of an old English word, and it's taken from the Greek word hagiazo, which means to make one holy. And so when we're praying, hallowed be thy name, it means that we're attributing to God all the attributes that are truly His. He is holy and set apart. He is unique. Now, John Calvin observed this. He said that God's name should be hallowed was nothing other than to say that God should have His own honor, of which He is so worthy, that men should never think or speak of Him without the greatest veneration. John Calvin's right. He is holy. And God's name, it signifies really who he is, the character traits of who he is. Now, I don't know if you remember, but Moses saw God face to face. And this is the second time that he'd received the Ten Commandments. And it says that he spoke God's name. Let me read that section for you. It says in Exodus 34, 5 through 7, it says, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, and who keeps loving kindness for thousands, and who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins. And yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And all the characteristics that you see there in verses six and seven are the equivalent of the name that he said in verse five. And when you look at the Old Testament, there are, there are name after names for God. There's Elohim, which means creator God. El Elyon, which means possessor of heaven and earth. You have Jehovah Jireh, God provides. You have Jehovah Shalom, God is peace. And I could go on and on and on. But there is nothing greater than to say God is holy. Matter of fact, when Isaiah had the vision, in Isaiah 6, and he saw the train of God's robe fill the temple, and he saw these angels that they were flying around God, and they were covering their, their eyes and covering their bodies with the wings, and what were they crying out? Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. So hallowing God's name, it begins with worship and is to attribute to him the reverence that he deserves. So, so how are we to do that? What are some ways that we show reverence to God? Well, first, we, we show reverence or hallow his name by acknowledging that he exists. When someone says, hey, I don't believe that there's a God right there that is irreverent, we acknowledge the existence of God for who he is. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. We are called to acknowledge his existence, but also to seek him. And when we do, guess what? The Bible says we'll find him. Second, to reverence God is to have a true understanding, true knowledge about him. And the only way that you'll have a true knowledge of God is again to run back to the word of God. I gotta tell you, there's the wacky and weird out there if you go online. And everyone has an opinion of what they think God is. But the true designation of who God is will be found in the word of God. Do not veer away from the word of God. Matter of fact, Origen, he was a church father, he said the man who brings into his concept of God ideas that have no place there takes the name of the Lord God in vain. We need to discover the truths of who God is from his word. So we acknowledge that he exists. We have the true knowledge of who he is. And third, we reverence God by acts of private and public worship. This means that you have a personal time with God. That there are times in your life when you read the word of God and you pray and you seek him honestly with an open heart. And this, public worship, where we gather together as God's people and we hear the word of God preached and we sing and praise his name and we give and we serve. Guys, this is worshiping God. Both of them are important and both show reverence to him. All of those are important. Fourth, by living a holy life. By living a holy life. Now, everybody likes them to say, well, no one's perfect, and we're not. But we're changing. And that means that we have a desire in our heart to live a life that honors God. And there is time after time after time in the Bible a call to holiness, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to be different honor God. And when you do, it shows reverence for him. So Jesus began right here with our father, part of the corporate church family. Father, it means intimacy. Hallow thy name means worship. It also means reverence. Now many of you know, I don't know if you've read Hudson Taylor's book, Spiritual Secrets, but he wrote in there when he was sailing to China at the very beginning of his ministry going to China, I guess the boat, uh, the, the wind had stopped and the boat was drifting because of the currents closer and closer to shore. And it was coming to an island that was full of cannibals and literally they could see from the boat on shore these cannibals making fi fires waiting for them to come to shore. It's kind of like, oh, dinner. And so the captain was kind of freaking out. Every, all the crew was freaking out and this is what he wrote in his journal. He says, the captain said to me, well, we've done everything that can be done. And then Hudson Taylor said, a thought occurred to me and I replied, no, there's one thing that has not been done yet. He said, what is that? He said, 
there are four of us Christians on board this ship. Let each of us go to our own rooms and let us kneel down and seek our Father in heaven. And so Taylor went to his room, got on his knees and began to pray. And he said very quickly, God laid on his heart, I'm gonna bring wind. And so he goes up to the deck and he sees the first officer and he says, hey, let down your sails. And this is what he wrote, he said, the first officer said, what good would that do? And he answered kind of roughly, he said, I told him that I've been asking for wind from our father and it's going to come immediately and immediately it did. And so they were able to lift up the sails. And this is what he, he wrote kind of as an addendum. He said, thus the God of heaven encouraged me. And when I landed on China's shores and I understood that I could bring every variety of need to him in prayer and to expect that he would honor the name of the Lord Jesus and that he would help me in my time of need. Now, Hudson Taylor, he's a man of great faith, but he understood that we have a father in heaven and that we can run to our father. Yes, he is holy and distinct, but we are his royal children and we can come into the throne. First thing we see, we pray to our father in heaven with intimacy and reverence. The second thing we see is we pray to our father in heaven to establish his kingdom and his will on earth. We pray so that his will and his kingdom will be established right here. Now, verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He begins with your kingdom come. Now, in the beginning, the kingdom of God was on earth. Adam and Eve, they had perfect relationship with the Father. They had this one-to-one -one relationship with God. It was real, it was tangible, it was full on earth, and then the fall came. And since the fall, there have been two warring kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. As a matter of fact, Augustine, in his writings called The City of God, he calls them the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And he said that each of these kingdoms has its own ruler, its own people, its own desire, and its own destiny. And so in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came on the scene, what Jesus preached was kingdom. Jesus comes on the scene and he just starts preaching kingdom, that the kingdom of God is here. Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15, it says, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into, the king, into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so what Jesus did then, when he arrived, he started to do miracles and he proved that the kingdom of God was here. He cast out demons. He did miracle after miracle and the ultimate test is he died on the cross for our sins, breaking the chains of Satan. And he won the battle for us. Now, Jesus told the religious leaders when he was here in Matthew 12 this, he says, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He also told his disciples when he sent them out two by two, and he told them to heal people, he said, heal those who are sick and say to them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And when Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? This is what Jesus said. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that they, I would be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. It is the kingdom of heaven come to earth. 
and it is present now with us. So what does it mean to have the kingdom of God here? So when we pray, your kingdom come, first, we're asking God that his kingdom would reign in us. We're asking God, Lord, you reign. You establish your kingdom more and more in my life. You have your way with me. And also, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're asking God and we're telling God, God, I'm all in. I'm yours. I'm captured. I'm your servant. I'm your child. Jesus often talked this way to his disciples. He does not want us to be lukewarm. He wants us to be fully committed. As a matter of fact, in Luke 9.62, to his disciples, he said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. That means when you start the work of Christ, when you enter into the kingdom, quit looking back and say, oh man, I, I really liked it when I wasn't in the kingdom of God. I wish I could have those leeks and onions again. Now, he wants us committed. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we mean, Lord, I am in 100%. Third, when we pray, your kingdom come, what we're saying to God, to use our witness, to use our life, to use us. You know, I was just talking to someone, even this morning, and he was telling me that in his office, that you know, they were just talking, he said, you've got this new job, and, and he was telling me that, that he just made a comment um, that he, he, he would take his devotion and he would kind of go to another part of the building and someone said, hey, what book is that? He said, oh, it's devotion. And next thing you know, all the people around started popping up, hey, I'm a Christian, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And then eventually, he's starting to pray with people and our witness makes a difference. Matter of fact, you never know what you say to people, how it may encourage them. You know, we did the oh-so-fit run recently as a church. We had a little table there and they had all kinds of stuff and ours just said, need prayer. Now, I, I was trying to figure out how do you, you, know, you only get somebody for about 30 seconds in one of those things, but there was a guy next to me in the booth, in his little booth, and so I just started talking to him when people were in our booth, and I shared with him, and eventually we started talking about God and about the gospel, and then at the end of it, I said, hey, man, if you ever want to talk, just let me know, and I gave him a card. So when was that? Six, eight weeks ago? Yesterday, I got an email from this guy, and he says, hey, some things have been happening in my life. Can I call you and talk to you about spiritual things? Yeah. Your witness, your life, your words, they make a difference. So when we pray your kingdom come, that's part of it. And also your kingdom come. It's to recognize that Christ already run the war. He won. The however in that is that it's not full yet on earth. Jesus defeated sin and Satan on the cross. But at present, we're sandwiched between the triumph of the cross and the end of the age. One day, God is going to have a new heaven and a new earth. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, and I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. One day, the Lord is gonna physically reign on earth. So what this means is we have an already not yet kingdom, already. The kingdom resides within us, in our hearts. And wherever we go, and it resides in the church. Did you know that God has one plan, plan A? It's the church. He wants to impact our culture through us, his people. 
Some of you already, it's in us. Wherever you go, you bring the kingdom of God with you. Each of us is a minister of the gospel. It's already, but it's not yet. It's not yet in its fullness. I mean, one day, Christ will return. One day, there will be a thousand-year reign. Then everything will be made new. So we're to ask him, your kingdom come, but also your will be done. Now, most of you know the, the word amen. Most people think when you say amen, it means, okay, it's finished. But did you know that amen actually means may it be done in accordance to your will? Some people are afraid to pray that prayer because they're not sure what God is gonna do. But prayer means that we are bringing our will into conformity to his will. Prayer is not, I am trying to persuade God to do what I want him to do. Now, there's a, a teaching out there called Word Faith Teaching. Those guys totally missed it. They got it wrong, wrong, wrong. We do not name it and claim it, and then God is obligated to do it. No. Our will is to be conformed to his will. Listen to R. Kent Hughes. He says, your will be done in me on earth as it is in heaven. In praying this, we invite God to conquer us. And that is why this petition is so scary. When we pray this prayer, we are asking God to do what is necessary to make his will prevail in our lives. And then God, with gracious, kind violence, to root out all the impediments of our obedience. I love that. We're asking God for his patient, kind violence to root out the impediments. Now, some people are afraid to pray this, but it's crucial that we pray this. We want his will over our own will. And it's remembering that we have a Father in heaven who cares. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus modeled this for us. On the night that he was betrayed in the garden, Jesus said this and said it went a little while beyond them in Matthew 26. And he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. And also his brother James, his half-brother, he taught the same thing. James 4, 13 through 15, come now, you who say today and tomorrow will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, and yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while then and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live also and do this or that. And John said the same thing. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So why is it important that we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, I think first and foremost, we're giving God sovereignty. We're acknowledging his rightful place in our life. He is the sovereign one. He is over all things. Second, your will be done as a recognition that we are submitting our will to him. And guys, that's a good and safe place to be. That Lord, we submit to you. You are the sovereign one. And we rest in the truths of Scripture, even when things aren't going the way we want. Oftentimes when things are difficult, it's hard to see this or understand this, but I can tell you Romans 8, 28 applies here. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That verse is never a verse that I quote to somebody when they're in the midst of a trial. 
But I gotta tell you, how many times has it been after the trial that you can look back and you can say, wow, I see that now. It's important, our will submitted to him. Also guys, we're to pray your will be done as a daily reminder that God does not spare us from trials. You understand that in this life, there's gonna be trouble. I don't know if you've ever listened to Charles Spurgeon or I mean read Charles Spurgeon, but listen to what he said. He said, Mark the Christian, Jesus does not suffer so as to exclude your suffering. He bears a cross, not that you may escape it, but that you may endure it. Christ exempts you from sin, but not from sorrow. Remember that and expect to suffer. And then he said, were you ever in the melting pot, dear friends? I've been there. And as a result of melting is where we arrive at the true evaluations of things. We're poured into a new and better fashion, more completely like our Lord. That's how God works. He uses the difficulties of our lives to shape us and to mold us. But when Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me there may be peace, in this world you will have tribulations, take courage, I've overcome the world, that's where we lie. There's great hope and peace, even in the midst of the struggle in that. So on earth and heaven, it's a reminder that we live here, but we always have heaven in mind. So Jesus began his model prayer here with three petitions. First, hallowed be thy name. God's name is above all other names. Second, the kingdom of heaven has come and been established on earth. That means that he is in us and around us. And third, your will be done on earth. That means in us and around us as well. Now, I don't know if you've ever read Elizabeth Elliot, but she was staying at a farmhouse of a Welsh shepherd and his family in the mountains of North Wales. And uh, she was watching one misty morning as the shepherd was out on a horse and, and he had this border collie by the name of Max and, and Mac. And this is what she said. She says, Mac was in his glory. He came from a long line of working dogs and, and had sheep in his blood. And this is what he was made for and, and what he had been trained to do. And it was a marvelous thing to see him circling to the right and circling to the left and, and barking and, and crouching and racing along and herding the stray sheep here and nipping a stubborn one there. His eyes always glued to the sheep, but his ears always listening for that little whistle of his master. In a letter that day, Mac assisted his master to arrange a dip for the struggling sheep. And she said, Mac was magnificent. As the sheep would attempt to escape the tub, he would snarl and snap and nip at their faces and they'd go right back in. Mac's every move in and out of the pen and the pasture was perfect. He seemed as good as the shepherd himself. And amazed, Elizabeth Elias, she turns to the shepherd's wife and she asked me, she says, does a sheep, do they know what's happening? And the wife said, they don't have a clue. And she says, well, how about Mac? And this is what she said. She said, the dog doesn't understand the pattern, only the obedience to his master. And then she said, I saw two creatures who were in their fullest sense in their glory. A man who had given his life to the sheep who loved them and loved his dog. And a dog whose trust in a man was absolute whose obedience was instant and unconditional, and whose very meat and drink was to do the will of his master. And I can tell you as a pastor that it is God's will that we pray. He wants us to literally be prayer warriors on our knees, first with intimacy and reverence, and second, that he would establish his kingdom and his will.
first in our hearts and our lives, and then out to the world around us. Let's pray. Well, Father, we give you this morning. And Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you how you call us, God, to be prayer warriors. You call us, God, to, to, to approach you because you're so accessible to us now, Lord, through Christ. You are our Father. And Lord, we have access to you at any time, at any moment as your children. Lord, as I pray, even this morning, I pray that you would move amongst us, have your way with us by the Spirit. Bless the time of fellowship and the remainder of our morning. May you be encouraged, Lord, by the service we pray. And minister, God, in Jesus' name, amen.